Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brant. And on this episode, Brant answers the age-old question, are the Osmonds metal? Because it's SST-263, the various artists compilation, duck and cover, where, yep, we've heard all these before. But it's actually kind of cool to go through this one. It's a bit nostalgic to go through some of these uh, cover tracks on this comp. So always interested to get into that. Again, with you, Brant, in the new year, mm-hmm. 2024, here we go. It's the year of Mojack, and to kick us off, we've got a special guest. Yeah, we've got Mike Etchart on the show. Mike was the sales manager at SST circa 87 through 89. Yeah, so just as they were going CD crazy and yeah. uh, pumping out tons of product. So it's a really, really interesting interview with Mike and he's a hella swella fella. Oh, he sure is. Yeah. 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 Very cool to have Mike on the show. Before we get into it, Brent, why don't you hit us with some brand new spiels? Okay. Had a little bit of a break there. Spent some of it doing stuff of zero interest to our listeners. Um, you know. Oh, do oh do tell. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I've said it before. When I'm in Mojack mode, I'm all in, and. Uh, you know, I have not been in Mojack mode, but starting right now, my head is 100% back in the game. Nice. I did manage to read a few books over the holidays, one of which was Sonic Life, a memoir. Oh, that's uh, good. By Thurston Moore, or Thirst, as Watt calls him whenever Thurston quotes him in the book. Yeah, Thirst. Yeah. It's a long one, 500 pages, and, and I, you know, I don't have a list or anything, but easily the best book I read last year. My one complaint, and I've made this observation before is that it's mm-hmm. it's front heavy on the early years and it seems to breeze past some of the later years but that's a minor complaint in in regards to Thurston's book anyways because the early years are so fascinating the no wave scene the early punk scene uh, like Thurston was ground floor you know, driving into the city to see stuff like suicide at Max's Kansas City is a story he t- talks about yeah um, the sonic youth years are covered well, some great nugs on songwriting and recording ses- sessions sent me on a Sonic Youth listening kick, which um, was awesome. I listened to Sonic Youth almost too much in the mid to late 90s, especially Daydream Nation, Goo, Dirty, Experimental Jet Set, Trash and No Star, Washing Machine, and Thurston's 95 solo album, Psychic Hearts. So anytime I listen to any of those albums, which I rarely do anymore, it's just pure nostalgia for me. Mm. My favorite thing about this book, though, is that it doubles as kind of a love letter to record collecting and outsider music from the 60s until now. I say outsider music because it it really runs the gamut from free jazz, art-damaged noise bands, to many of Sonic Youth's peers in the 80s, underground, to the explosion of post-nevermind alternative rock in the 90s. So, Ryan, with that in mind, here are five albums slash bands I checked out after reading about them in Sonic Life. Oh, nice. Do it. Okay. Viv Ockeldren, if I'm pronouncing that right. Not a person, a band. And they were a Detroit band, active around 84 to 1990, releasing four albums and three singles in that time. So pretty prolific. Uh, the album I tracked down is their debut from 1985, Old Bags and Party Rags, on their own label, Akashic. 
everything other than their last two full lengths were on Akashic. The last two were on New York label Resonance, which kind of leaned more towards garage rock. At least the stuff I have on Resonance is is kind of like more are kind of like more garage bands. This is not garage rock. It's noisy, sometimes almost gothy post-punk with guitarist Jeff Fry and drummer Deb Agoli trading off on vocals. Looks like after they split, or or maybe it's why they split, Jeff moved to Berlin and became a major figure in the psych rock scene over there. Deb went on to play in Outrageous Cherry, a fave of mine from Detroit, and bassist Kira McDonald went on to play in Volbeats with Matt Smith of Outrageous Cherry and currently featuring our guy Peter Andrus of Divine Horseman, um, although I'm not certain they were in the band at the same time. Anyways, check it out. Viv Ockeldren, A-K-A-U-L-D-R-E-N. It's really good. Right on. You've never heard? Never. Okay. No. Look, there was a ton. I have kind of my top five or something, but I didn't write it down for reading Thirst's book. Yeah. I didn't, that one didn't grab me, but uh, good re-recommend. Yep. Uh, okay, another one. This Indianapolis band, Math Bats. Obviously a great name, uh, but also a great band. They weren't around long. One six-song 12-inch EP in 1986, self-released, as far as I can tell, that that's it which is a shame because that EP is super killer. Engineered by Paul Mahern of the Zero Boys. It's a bit jangly, maybe like R.E.M. with the post-punk influences dialed up a bit. Again, a hint of goth. Uh, I found some reference to an unreleased album. I'd sure like to hear that. Somebody somewhere should release that with this EP tacked on or, or at the very least put it up on Bandcamp. Uh, the EP is called Bat Day, by the way. It's on YouTube, so check that out. There's also uh, footage from a reunion show in 2009 and from sh there's footage from shows in 86 and 88. Looks like they had a pretty good following. Okay, Thurston name drops lots of noise artists and I'm talking straight out noise like White House or Mersbo and and way more obscure stuff like uh, Borbetto Magus is a band he talks about. Um, stuff I'm really not into, like I like noise but generally in the context of a band. Also, he's a big fan of free jazz, and he talks about this album called Real Deal by David Murray and Milford Graves. And I'm down with some free jazz for sure, So, but I had never heard this album, so I checked it out. Came out in 1992 on Japanese label D.I.W., which was a, you know, kind of a jazz label. David Murray comes from the Albert Eiler, Archie Shep lineage of sax players, uh, and Milford Graves um, played with Albert. Eiler's band. He played on the the Love Cry album in the late 60s. Uh, he played with Sonny Chirac. He, he played drums on Black Woman. He played with Albert Eiler at John Coltrane's funeral. Just in, an insane drummer. Um, he plays around on the toms for quite a bit for this recording, and it kind of fills in the sound, you know, like it's just a duo recording. Uh, so it kind of gives the album a, a pretty full sound. If you're in the market for some wild jazz, look no further. Okay, Ryan, uh, it's not all good here. Um, now, you're the resident Homestead Records freak, so, mm. so I want to ask you about a Homestead band that Thurston mentions and uh, I had never heard before, and they are just the worst. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Flowers? Oh, yeah. Happy yeah. Flowers are, they're, they're difficult, for sure. Yeah. Kind of impenetrable. Yeah. Uh, it's funny, though, like they have, a cult following and some noise rock 
worlds, I guess. I don't know. But yeah, no, it's... And they put out a few albums too, right? <laughs> More than a few. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, they were a duo from Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, a su- surprising number of releases on Homestead. Four yeah. full lengths, three singles, a Peel Session, um, a full-length singles collection, and an anthology CD called too many bunnies, not enough mittens. A historical yeah. perspective, eighty-three to eighty-eight, which is what I listen to. Um, I've picked them up. I I've picked up Happy Flowers like in my travels because of the label, but I've definitely like not tried real hard to complete my collection because I just know there's no repeat listens there. <laughs> yeah, Mister Anus on guitar and vocals, and Mister Horribly Charred Infant on drums and vocals. <laughs> <laughs> Almost all of the songs are sung from like a child's perspective in the first person. Um, some are even done in like a faux child's voice. Like there's a song called I Want a BB Gun and he's just screaming that over and over like he's a toddler throwing a tantrum. Uh, I have a high tolerance for noise and weird shit, but this one, this is just not good at all. Um, pick the, like pick the worst thing. Um, on SST <laughs> that you can think of, and this Happy Flowers would make that sound like a masterpiece. Yeah, this might be even worse than the worst on yeah. oh, SST. It is. it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's it's tough. Hey, but speaking of far out there stuff on Homestead, here a bit of a redemption recommend. Maybe, hopefully, mm-hmm. check out this band out. O W T. Check out that band. Hmm on homestead i don't think people many people know that band but um that's far out and good on Mm. homestead too bad it's not the pjd band out it's not that's what i really want to hear okay uh save my favorite uh discovery for last and i bet you're into this ryan and if you're not you should be the hollow men from des moines iowa do you know them not really no Okay, well, but I, but I should be. Hey, you you'd like you'll like this band. There are several bands going under the name The Hollow Men. This is definitely the one that Thurston was talking about. I checked out their second album, Sinister Flower Gift, from 1986 on Pravda Records, Ryan. That's why I thought maybe you you have checked them out. Hmm, maybe, maybe, but uh, I don't know. It didn't sink in. Yeah, tell me more. Okay, tell well, more. I I love them so much that I also tracked down their follow-up 1988's Pink Quartz Sunblasting on Amoeba Records. Based out of LA, I don't think any association with the record store, but I could be wrong. This is just top shelf 80s college rock. Could have easily been on SST. A dash of Volcano Suns, Huskers, Replacements even. It's totally rocking. I give the edge to Pink Quartz Sunblasting, but I honestly can't believe I've, I've never heard these albums until now. I'll be watching for mentions of the hollow men. Maybe like they do get talked about and I've just missed it, but I feel like not. Yeah. Well, I think there's a pretty good likelihood that I've read about them, Mm -hmm. checked them out and it just didn't sink, but I'm another re-recommend. Yeah. I meant to grab Gimme Indie Rock off the shelf and shelf and check if they were in there, but I feel like if they were, I would have checked them out by now. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. And we can be the new wind though, but that book is quite the jumble in places. Yeah. Well, there's a recommend for you. If you check out any of the bands I mentioned, The Hollow Men. Well, there's two for me. Yeah. I'm going to do it. Nice. That's what I have, Ryan. I mean, there's, I have a bit of a spiel log, but I, yeah, you told me you have a spiel. Gosh. So 
I have a Orgo spiel. Yeah, well, I have a spiel log too, but I've been save. I'll save it for next week because I thought since we're doing the duck and cover comp, which is a comp of covers, mm-hmm. I'd do a tribute to tributes. Okay. So I know that we did our top ten cover songs in a previous episode. I think it was two forty nine, the melting plot. But I thought I would just go hog wild, Orgo, you might say. And uh, list just endless tributes to tributes that I organized them, and I've got 90. So, wow. s- so strap in. Okay. I have a little spiel about some covers too, but more in the context of the, of the history lesson part two, I think. So I don't think I'll steal your thunder. I don't think so. <laughs> 90. Okay. I'm strapped in. Hit me. Okay. Okay. So here we go. 90 tribute comps. Ready? Yeah. Ish. 90-ish. Okay. And again, I organized them. SST band tributes. Confuse Your Idols. That's a tribute to Sonic Youth on Narnak. 2004 has Steel Pole Bathtub on it. Our band could be your life, of course, on your Little Brother Records. That has Seam, Tree People, Vita, Cracker Bash, Jawbox, Rise Above, The West Memphis Three, Benefit, but also a tribute to Black Flag from 2002 with Iggy, Mike Patton, and Lemmy. Gimme, 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 the Black Flag tribute. On Secret Life Records that has Dez, uh, Watt, and Kira on it. The two Missing the Minutemen tribute comps by Mike Watt and the Missing Men on Anger Records. But then let's do Punks doing Punks. Uh, Small Circle of Friends, the Germs tribute on Grass Records 96, the Melvins, Watt, Mascus, Meat Puppets, L7, the Something's Gone Wrong Again, great one on CZ 1992 with the Doughboys, Fluid, Coffin Break, Digits, Lunachicks, Naked Raygun, Violent World is a Misfits tribute, Caroline 1997 with Snapcase, Farside, Shades Apart, Tanner, and then Gabba Gabba Hey, Triple X, this is on the SS Tree because it has Bug Lamp on it, DI, Pygmy Love Circus, uh, L7, Bad Religion, Blast, Flesh Eaters, Chemical People, Virus 100 is a Dead Kennedys tribute, Alternative Tentacles with No Means No and many others, of course. And then there's the Mortal Micronauts tribute on Iconoclastic Pop with Kill Creek. Uh, there's the When You're Young Jam tribute, Serpico, Down by Law, The Marshes, Dynamic Truths are on that one. The We Are Not Devo one from 97 with SNFU on it. The horror tribute to Wire on WMO with Band of Susans, Watt, customized. Uh, tribute to Sonny Vincent, a triple CD with Pat Todd on it. The Bell Rays, that's a good one. There's this uh, crazy one that I have from uh, like early 80s, uh, Devotees. It's a, it's a tribute to Devo and where K-Rock listeners sent in their tapes. That's kind of cool on Rhino Records. Problem of Leisure is a recent Gang of Four one with Idols and Helmet on it. Really bad music for really bad people. This is on 3-1-G with Child Bite, Mets, Mike Patton. Then, of course, there are uh, somewhat recent, the four double LP tribute comps, the Jeffrey Lee Pierce sessions on Glare House. Those are great with Iggy, the Sadies, uh, Lydia Lunch, Julie Christensen, Nick Cave, Lanigan's on that. Uh, Freedom of Choice, Yesterday's New Wave Hits, performed by Today's Stars on Caroline, with Sonic Youth, The Muffs, Erectus Monotone. That's a good one, actually. How about some indie rock tribute comps? Bad Scene, Everyone's Fault, The Jawbreaker Tribute, or Hours and Hours, The Seaweed Tribute, Until the Shaking Stops, The Jawbox Tribute, An Idiot to Not Appreciate Your Time, The Silkworm Tribute, and Where Is My Mind, of course, a Pixies Tribute. We've mentioned on the show a ton of Imaginary Records tributes, of course. They did a whole a whole series of those. 
There's the 15 minutes and three Heaven and Hell ones. Those are all for Velvet Underground. The Outlaw Blues times two, that's for Dylan. If six was nine, that's Hendrix. Stoned Again, Rolling Stones. Time Between, The Birds Tribute, which we'll be talking about The Birds on this show. Uh, the Shangri-La Tribute to The Kinks. Fast and Bulbous for Beefheart. Beyond the Wildwood, Sid Barrett. And Brittle Days, Nick Drake. How about some Australia labels or bands? Eternally, Yes, please. Yes, please. Yeah. Yeah, Eternally Ours, the tribute to the Saints with the Nomads, Monomen, and, and Bell Rays. What about Neurotically Yours, another tribute to the Saints with Chuck Prophet, Bevis Fraun, Trotsky Icepick, and the Leaving Trains. Uh, Hell Ain't a Bad Place to Be, an ACDC tribute on Reptilian with the Chrome Cranks and the Dwarves. Uh, Set It on Fire, the Scientist tribute on Dogmeat with Cheater Slicks, Monomen, Laughing Hyenas, Mudhoney, of course, and then Hard to Beat. A Stooges tribute on a go-go with celibate rifles. This is all Aussie bands too. Exploding white mice, seminal rats, psychotic turnbuckles. That's a great one. How about some 90s major label bandwagon tribute comps? Why not? Beat the Retreat, Richard Thompson tribute. Mentioned that before because it has Dino, Bob, and X on it. Encomium, we've mentioned that before. The Led Zeppelin tribute on Atlantic with Rollins, Helmet, and Yao. Kiss My Ass, the Kiss tribute, or Classic Kiss Regrooved, as it's called, with Dinosaur Jr., Lemonheads, Anthrax is on that one. Uh, Where the Pyramid Meets the Eye, a tribute to Rocky Erickson on Sire from 1990, was ZZ Top, of course, Buttle Surfers, and Sister Double Happiness. Uh, Red Hot and Blue, I like this one, a Cole Porter tribute because it has a Tom Waits song on it. Saturday Morning's Greatest Hits, and then this one is... The one with butthole surfers, helmet, Ramones, and then stay awake. The uh, the tribute to Disney songs. Uh, that's actually late '80s, but it has replacements. Tom Waits, Sinead O'Connor on that one. There are zillions of Clash tributes. Here are a few quickies. Uh, the White Riot volumes one and two that came out on Uncut magazine in 2004. Uh, the reason I have those is because Tommy Stinson is on those doing tribute songs to the clash never ending story part one you gifted me that one that's for released emotions from 91 there's tons more of course again clash tributes such as the recutting the crap comps there's two of them that's cut the crap era clash that I mentioned a couple episodes ago um, let's go to the Pacific Northwest 14 songs for Greg Sage and the wipers on Tim Kerr that one's great cracker bash poison idea Dharma Bombs, um, Give the People What They Want. This is a sub-pop tribute to the Kinks with Mudhoney, Lanigan, Young Fresh Fellows. Another Damned Seattle comp. This is on Musical Tragedies 1991 with Coffin Break, Gas Huffer, Skin Yard, Posies, Love Battery. Um, the KEXP presents Raw Power. Uh, this is the band comprised of Barrett Martin, Mike McReady, Mark Arm, and Duff McKagan. And you actually sent me some Duff over Christmas. Mm-hmm. They're doing the Stooges on that one, KEXP. That's a great tribute comp. Uh, here's some Twin Cities tribute comps. I'm in love with that song, Tribute to the Replacements on Tomboy. It's actually an Aussie comp with uh, Celibate Rifles, Anya's. Left of the Dial, another Matt's comp on Face Down Records. Will Inherit the Earth is another Matt's comp on 1234 Go with Friend of the Pod, Jeff Shrek's band, The Ergs on it, and Chad Price's band, Drag the River. Do Hooskers on Synapse 1993. That's a Twin Cities band comp of a Hoosker Do tribute. Hammerhead, Janitor Joe, Vertigo, Arc Welder, 
Uh, and then rocking here tonight, a tribute to Slim Dunlap. That's on New West 2013 with the Mats, Lucinda Williams, Steve Earle, John Doe, Soul Asylum. That's a great one. How about some Canada tribute comps, Brandt? Oh, yeah. Yes, please. Okay. Here's two soundtracks for you. The FUBAR soundtrack. Right. Out in 2002 with Sloan, No Means No, Chicks Dig It, Breach of Trust. The tribute to Hardcore Logo that came out in 96 has the Doughboys on it. Don't forget about O Canada, Volumes 1 and 2 on Lance Rock, where you have Mud Honey, Manor Astroman, and Bum doing classic Canadian punk songs. Um, and Creepsville 13, that's a Forbidden Dimension tribute on Six Foot Plus with the New Jacobin Club. Um, <laughs> I said sometimes, that's a tribute to Bum on Magic Teeth Records from 2002 with the Fastbacks and Stan GT. Scratches and Needles, a tribute to the Nils. That's a great comp. It is. Uh, tri- yeah, and the Nils definitely deserved a tribute. That has Down by Law, Punch Buggy, Stan GT out on Mag Wheel. Shot Spots, a tribute to Trooper on Visionary Records with SNFU, DOA, Teenage Head, and Face Puller. Uh, tribute to Nashville, another kind of soundtrack one, came out on Mint, but it and I think kind of organized by Carolyn Mark way back when, and has Dallas Good, Nico Case, Tom Holliston on it. The Dallas Good cover of Bluebird is so awesome on that. Right? Yeah. It makes my, yeah, it gives me the feels big time. Okay, here's the last run. Tributes to the influences. John Fogarty wrote a song for everyone on Rubber Rabbit and Pravda Records. This has Girl Trouble and Steve Wynn on it. New Car to Paint. Here's a Tom Waits tribute on Manifesto with Dexter Romweber and Nico Case. Step Right Up, another Waits tribute on Caroline. This has The Wedding Present, Archers of Loaf, These Immortal Souls. We've mentioned this one because uh, we, of course, have had some releases by These Immortal Souls. Alex Chilton. Jeffrey Lee Pierce is on that one. Surprise Your Pig, a tribute to R.E.M. on Staple Gun with Band of Susans, Jawbreaker, Jawbox, Flag Camp, speaking of the Sadies. Uh, Turban Renewal, Sam the Sham, tribute awesome. on, Nor- on Norton. Yeah, Hazel Adkins, The Liars, Untamed Youth, Flat Duo Jets on that one. Twisted Willie, 1996 on Justice Records. Tribute to Willie Nelson with L7, Mark Lanigan, Gas Huffer, Steel Bowl, Bathtub, X. Uh, Welcome to My Nightmare, another one on Triple X yep. with Bug Lamp of Cabbages and Kings. The uh, Vandals Lid- doing Poison, which is just so awesome. Yeah. yeah, Lydia Lunch, Roland S. Howard, Clawhammer, and The Hangman. Uh, another Keith tie-in there. Mm-hmm. We're All Normal, Arthur Lee and Love on... Alias, 1994, Urge Overkill, and another SST tie-in because the band Gobblehoof is on there and Das Damen. You Got Lucky, a tribute to Tom Petty. Love that one because it has Engine Kid, Silkworm, and Edsel on it. Tribute to Neil Young, The Bridge, Caroline with Soul Asylum, Pixies, Dinosaur Jr., Henry Kaiser. Chairman of the Board, a tribute to Sinatra on Grass Records, 1993, Sister Double Happiness, Pitch Blend, Down by Law, Sam I Am, Jawbox, uh, Daddy Rockin' Strong, Nolan Strong and the Diablos on Norton uh, with the rating sound, the A-Bones, Dirt Bombs, uh, Not the Singer But the Song, a tribute to Alex Chilton on Munster 1991 with Young Fresh Fellows, Exploding White Mice, Smiles, Vibes, and Harmony, a tribute to Brian Wilson on DeMilo from 1990 with Das Domin, Untamed Youth, Sonic Youth, the A-Bones, uh, Sunday Night, a tribute to Junior Kimbrough on Fat Possum from 2005 with the Stooges on it. Uh, Mark Lanigan, Neon Meat of an Octofish, a tr- uh, tribute to Beefheart on Animal World with Watt, Truman's Water, 
uh, Mystic Radio presents covers going way back with RKL, GI, and SWA does a track on that one. No way. Uh, and then Hard to Believe, another amazing CZ comp. Uh, this one's a tribute to Kiss with Bullet LaVolta, Skin Yard, All the Melvins, Coffin Break, Chemical People. That puts me up to 91, Brant. And you know which one is number 92? Hmm. This one? Duck and Cover. <laughs> Good one, man. So many good comps in there. And obviously there's probably a thousand more, but that's a pretty oh, yeah. comprehensive list. You know, one that I thought of that I, you and I used to listen to all the time that I don't think you mentioned is, um, I don't know why this popped into my head while I was listening to you, but that Ventures comp is a really good one. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, you know what? I don't, I didn't put any instro tribute comps on here. Good. Yeah, that's there's a, a, yeah that's... there are some good ones. There's a good Link Ray one too. There are probably a few Link Ray ones, but well, there are definitely oh, there's is. Yeah. yeah, there's tons, tons. Good call. I didn't. I didn't really look at that. I was kind of sticking with the punk and indie and hopefully some SS Tree tie-ins. That was kind of my angle, but good call. Yeah, I, you know, I tend to write off tribute comps because there was just so many of them, but listening to that list, there are some good ones for sure. Like that hard-to-beat Kiss one is really good, and like that Nils one that you mentioned is amazing turban renewal might be my favorite like uh tribute album just off the top of my head uh of all time yeah the two on cz and triple x are insane yeah yeah just just the uh obviously the songs but the bands that they got for those comps amazing mm -hmm. yeah well it got for us completists it got to be difficult for a while there because Anytime a band's in the studio and, you know, they can just bang off some covers and, and there, there's a tribute to every, every band for a while there. Right. So. Yeah. Well, and there's also dozens of like ironic punk eighties tribute stuff yeah. out there too, that I didn't really touch. Yeah. Good one, man. Uh, we haven't been into the, a certain zone for quite a while. Which one is that? Comp zone. You got that right. <laughs> Okay, well, let's duck and cover. Yeah. History lesson, part one. All right. Like I said, a comp of covers. My copy of duck and cover, it's a double cutout. It's got like a saw blade through the spine. Then it's got a corner clipped off. Hmm. But it, it it is one of the, the, like the orange vinyl editions. And it's in great shape, except it's been mangled because it doesn't look like it was selling. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we're we're getting into this era of comps, anthologies, but also some some great underappreciated original albums from some some SST uh, alum as well as some newer bands. So lots to get excited about uh, yeah. in the new year. I went to check. You remember you mentioned Jim Rulin's Substack, yeah, uh, a while back, and was like, "What's that?" And so I went and checked it out, and he speaks about it in his Substack. He calls it one of SST's gimmick comps. Mm -hmm. In, in that, you know, it's a comp of covers. He, he kind of puts it together with uh, another comp that we'll get to in a few episodes, SST-276, the SST acoustic comp. Jim kind of said, kind of similar to me, like, did we need this? Maybe not, but it's a nice collection. And uh, I actually enjoyed it more than I thought I would by listening to it this week. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll get into my thoughts on that when we go through the tracks, but... Uh... <laughs> 
Wait. I thought it was a nice walk down memory lane. Yeah, it was all right. I don't nothing exclusive here. We should say we've heard all these tracks before on the show, uh, but yeah, it was a fun listen all the same. So Ryan, our goal for some of these episodes that we're going to be getting to, uh, where you know it's anthologies or whatever and stuff we've we've already discussed stuff we've already heard our goal for these episodes is to still track down interesting guests and we found one this week mike etchert was sales manager at the label as i mentioned circa 87 to 89 i think we should throw over to to mike right now and then we'll hop back on and and talk about duck and cover all right we're joined on the podcast today by mike etchert mike thanks for being on the show hey it's a pleasure thanks for having me jim I'm sorry. It's called Eugene. I'm looking at Jim's thing. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. No problem. Did you grow up in Ohay? And am I saying that right? It's pronounced Ohai. Ohai. Yep. Yes, I did grow up in Ohai, and that's in Southern California, kind of near Santa Barbara. If, if that that kind of where I'm about 75 miles north of Los Angeles. Tell me about your high school years. Like, what were you interested in in high school? Uh, uh, music. Yeah. <laughs> like a lot of people. And I was uh, I, a musician, a keyboard player, and a guitar player, and was starting to play in bands in high school. And, uh, you know, I dreamed of doing something in music. And, mm-hmm. you know, in those, there was no internet, there was no real, I didn't know anybody whose parents worked in the entertainment industry. I had no idea what that was, but I just knew that that was something that I wanted to do. Okay. What kind of music were you into in high school? Like what year are we talking? Yeah, I graduated from high school in 1978. Okay. So that was kind of the, uh, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on. I, I, and you know, in those days you played in, or I played in cover bands, mm-hmm. you know, at that era, high schools and junior highs had live bands play at their dances. Right. And, uh, I, so I so I started playing and learning to play songs that were just whatever was popular, to be honest. And so whether it was the Commodores or Led Zeppelin or Al Green or whatever was kind of happening on the radio and people wanted to dance to, those are the things that I was listening to and learning how to play, actually. Mm-hmm. What kind of bands would you go and see? Or did you go oh, see bands? Yeah, I did, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, at that time, I'm trying to remember, you know, I, I mean, I remember saw Queen live, I saw Journey live, I saw uh, the Stones, I saw, you know, whoever was big coming through Southern California, I would try to go see. Mm-hmm. And, you know, tickets, of course, back in those days, relatively speaking, were so much cheaper. Um, and, you know, it was it was much easier to go to, to go to shows. Um, but certainly, whenever there was a big concert from a band I like, I would try to make it out to the show. Mm-hmm. And, we where we where I grew up and live, you would <clears throat> occasionally you'd see, see stuff in Santa Barbara. There's a, a nice venue there that's a seats about four thousand. And then of course L.A. was L.A. And so I went to many a show at the Forum, right. Neil Young, just countless countless shows. Okay, so post high school, what was the plan? Uh, post high school, my my uh, well, I went to college. I went to San Diego State University, and. Um, I was on the long, slow plan, but I eventually mercifully graduated. Mm-hmm. So I can't, I finished college finally in 86. And my last gig uh, in high or in college, I should say, I was working, I was selling guitars and, and musical instrument gear in, in music stores. Mm-hmm. And I that's what I really wanted to do. I wanted to go to work for like Fender or Gibson or one of the big companies. And I was working in a store and I saw an ad. There was a publication that's still around actually in Los Angeles called The Music Connection which is this kind of weird 
kind of a industry thing, you know, what they talk a lot about, you know, getting deal record deals and things like that. But it also was about bands and their albums and things like that. And there was an ad in there uh, for from SST looking for a sales manager. And that's the ad that I answered. <laughs> and so I was hitting a brick wall trying to get a gig with with some of the musical instrument companies. Yeah. Uh, but then I saw that ad and I went and I went down for an interview and I sat down with Greg and Steve uh, Mugger. Yeah. And uh, somehow they chose me to be the sales manager at SST. OK. Uh, was it on your radar? Did you know what SST was? I did. Yeah. Yes, I was familiar with SST. Um, I, I wouldn't say I was a huge fan, certainly not a, a big punk fan, but but I certainly knew about SST and and had a respect for SST. I think that's um, you, you know one of the things to this day that I appreciated about about you know you don't and, and when you work in the record business as I eventually did after that, continued to work in the record business, you don't like everything that you're working on right. or with. But you, but you have to give it your all to to market that band or to to do what's best for that for that group. And I I recognize because I knew there were a couple of articles in the LA Times about SST. So I so I remember reading about them and you know having a, an admiration for you know for those guys. And I didn't know who they were, right? Um, but you know, really an appreciation for what they did, and it. And and basically, you know, it's stuff that they loved. In this case, Greg and and Chuck and maybe Steve to a lesser extent. And you know, doing it, keeping you know, keeping it afloat, doing doing that business, which is really hard in in the independent world with distribution and things like that. So, so I did know about them, and uh, and it was fun. It was it was a it was a funny interview, and I was surprised I got the job. To be honest. Yeah. Well, tell me about it. Was it in like uh, we've heard, talked to other people where. This maybe a little bit later where they had like a boardroom. Um, they they did have like a a meeting room. I'm trying to remember. I th- I think it was just Greg and um, I don't believe Chuck was there. It was, I think it was just Greg and Steve. Yeah. Um, and I do remember, you know. So this is this is what 87, and I'm recently out of college. And so the thing, of course, you think about doing when you <laughs> going on a job interview is, and I didn't. I didn't know the corp, the corporate culture or anything. So I wore a suit and tie <laughs> and I walked in the door and at the time there was a, a really nice guy named Roger who I can't remember Roger's last name, who was the kind of the receptionist and the office manager. And, and he was my first contact. And, and I just, you know, that feeling when your face gets real hot, like yeah. because you're embarrassed. I was like, Oh my God, I really overdressed for this. You know, they're going <laughs> to think I'm a total dork. Um, but that's but that's what it was anyway. So I and I and I went in and I it was just I think it was in Steve's office that that we had the interview. I don't think it was in that little conference room. And it was at the the office there that was in, uh, I, I think technically it was in North Long Beach, but but it, it it's referred to as the one that was in Carson. Okay. And so yeah, we sat down and we had a nice chat, I, and I kind of in, it just halfway mentioned I guess I had a resume, but I mentioned that I I had just graduated from college fairly recently. I think that was was the positive thing because Steve had worked his way through college mm. and I think he had just finished up at, at Cal State Long Beach, I think. Um, so I think that was kind of, I don't know, and the fact that maybe I was involved in sales at the time um, was, was kind of the kind of the point, I guess, that they appreciated. So so I come for calling back and, and Steve said I had the job. And so I, I and I reported into Steve. Okay. And, what was, what uh, was the job? 
What, or what sales did, manager. I was yeah. the sales manager. So I worked with basically, at that time, SST had probably, and I wish I still had the list, probably about 20 domestic distributors or one-stops or even direct accounts like the, there was a, cha- a West Coast chain called The Warehouse. Mm-hmm. So they had all of these distributors that they dealt with and then we also had the international distributors so we had typically one distributor in each country or in many countries not each country um and so my job was to basically interface between those folks and you know like like let's say a new release is coming out they wanted to get uh, an idea of a of you know how many to manufacture so you i would poll the distributors say hey we got this coming out how many do you think you want? So I kind of get a list of, of, of pre-orders for a given title and then also, you know, work with them on, on just any order that's got that that's going on. And, you know, at that time, this was really during the transition between from vinyl slash cassettes to CDs. Mm-hmm. So everybody really wanted CDs. Uh, and so that was kind of the big part of that is is and and we were constantly behind on up on getting or even the stuff that was already out on cd getting reorders in from the manufacturers the cd manufacturers and also um and then anything new going out so you know they didn't really want to hear about vinyl versions or cassette versions everybody that early hey yeah yeah that was really what was going on and i think you know that was really um and I'm trying to remember if, if it's in Jim's book, but he, I think he talks about one of the, uh, about midway through my time there. Um, and I, well, it was interesting when I first, when I first got there, uh, you know, you start to call all these distributors and you say, Hey, just introducing myself. I'm, I'm working at SST. I'm the sales manager. And they would two a one, they would all say, Hey, okay, that's cool. Yeah. Hey, we'd really like to go, um, exclusive with you guys you know be your one and only distributor right i mean they all said that right and i'm like well, that's interesting so then i would go back and i talked to steve and i'm like they all want to be you know exclusive he's like yeah just ignore that i'm like right. well, why, why don't you guys do that you know i could i could see a case for doing that what, what, what's your rationale and he said well you know they're basically said they're all going to fuck us somehow right and so they he wanted to be he didn't want to put all their all their eggs in one basket. So that's why we had all of this, you know, funny list of different distributors, again, one stops and then some direct accounts that we were selling to at the time. And then, you know, what ended up happening about midway or maybe near, maybe two thirds of the way through my time there, two of the biggest distributors, domestic distributors we had, when I say domestic, obviously I mean in the U S um, uh, one was called Important Records, and the other was called Gem, J-E-M. And both Important and Gem had uh, West Coast and East Coast um, warehouses and offices. So they were big in the indie distribution world. And uh, at the time, SST, we, were, we had a big CD order from the manufacturer sitting on the docks, basically, waiting for payment. Mm-hmm. And both Gem and Important went out of business at the same time, or more or less at the same time, and stiffed SST for the number I heard at the time, or that I recall, I think knowing anyway, was about $400,000. It's a lot of money. Yeah. A lot of money. And so, 
as as my time there was starting to wind down, I think Greg Greg pulled. I think Steve was gone by this time, and and Greg pulled me into the office and he said, you know, we're going to start selling directly to certain key retailer accounts and COD basically. So mm-hmm. we, we had to get some cash flow going. And so that was kind of one of the last things I did was these certain <clears throat> key accounts, setting them up, letting them know we would sell directly to them, but it was a COD order. Like bigger record stores, essentially. Bigger record stores, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, and of course that, and he, he, said, he warned me, of course, saying, hey, this is going to, there's going to be blowback from the other distributors. Um, but because you're you know, cutting out the middleman, essentially. You're cutting, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. Yeah. When I was leaving, that was what was going on, mm. and uh, it was a drag for SST, you know. And and I, I, they weren't the only label that got caught, you know, holding a bag of of, of owed monies by right. when both important and Jim went under. They're trying to make up the money they need to probably just yeah. to get these these CDs exactly get to them. them. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, again, that was the that was whatever all the distributors wanted was those CDs, and here we were stuck, not able to pay for the manufacturing of, of more at the moment so it was a it was a tough time for them i'm sure and mm-hmm. um and i don't know how that was eventually resolved if maybe they ended up getting some sort of money i, I doubt it but but i never heard but that was a a tumultuous time for, for sure i feel like sst was on the vent well, while they were on the vanguard of a lot of things and certainly one of the bigger indie labels of the 80s but i feel like they were kind of really a, one of the first indie labels to really go hard on CDs. Yes. Yes, they were. It, I think it it, it, ha, it was it had started before I got there. I like they had a couple of them that were already existing as far as I recall. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were, you know, it was interesting they were again, you know, I didn't really know the dynamic between the main 3 at the time. Um, but it was in retrospect, which I I discovered when I went to work for for major labels after that. You know, they really, for the most part, it was they—they they were so self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. Um, so not only were they were they kind of pushing the envelope on certain things, like you said, like CDs, but they also just—they basically had everything in house. So you had manufacturing responsibility folks that were were handled that. You had in-house art direction. You had in-house publicity. You had in-house touring. Right. I mean, it was really. Um, it was a great way for someone like me, new to the record business, to kind of get that full view of all of the components of how you 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 market artists and how you develop artists and how you sell sell records or CDs or whatever, and then how you how you continue to build those careers. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, because those guys have been doing it by even by that time for a long time, for ten years easily. Yeah. And, who who do you remember some of the people that were were around? Was Joe Carducci? I think was probably gone by then. He was gone by then. Yes, Ray Farrell not. was probably came on around the same time you. I did. got a little bit of Ray Farrell before yeah. he left. Yes, okay. and I bump into him occasionally, and because uh, he went to work for Geffen after that. Right. So um, yeah, and then uh, so I certainly remember those guys a little bit. Michael, who went by Spaceman, is that yep, what Michael Whitaker, yeah, we were... Michael Whitaker. That's right. He was there for a bit. Yep. Um, uh, Rich Ford was there for, for a long time. The whole time I was there, production and, manager, essentially, yes, exactly. Yep. Really yep. sharp guy, nice guy, musician as well. Yep. Super talented. Um, and Steve Call, of course, was there the whole time doing the 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 bookings for the and the setting up the tours. Yeah. Um, I don't remember who all was in the art department. 
Um, uh, but yeah, so you know, a lot of uh, oh, and Brian Long was there, of course, doing a radio promotion, college radio promotion. Jordan Schwartz was probably around with Global. I remember the name. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to remember the face now. God, it was 35 years. Ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going back a ways. It's going back a ways, but yeah. it was. Um, I, I get the feeling that that was really the peak in terms mm-hmm. of uh, of of the, the the people there and the the money coming in and everything like that. It was it was. You know, and and I think Steve was a big part of that. You know, again, looking back on on if, if to to I would assu- I would kind of say that Steve was essentially the general manager. Right. Um, and Greg obviously was was participating in a lot of that stuff, but he was really kind of the head of A and R and working with, with signing bands and recording and things like that. Chuck Chuck was kind of a free safety almost. He did a lot of different things there. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the, it was Steve. Steve was a real had a really good head for business. Uh, not that the other guys didn't, but but I certainly got that from Steve. And Steve was tough with the with the distributors. Like he would not hesitate to pick up the phone and, and kind of yell at him and say, mm-hmm. you know, "Send us our money, basically." Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I and I wish I could have worked with him longer uh, because he he really you know I would go in. He was he was very kind in terms of his time, and you know you would. And it, it, there wasn't like a lot of training and they kind of threw me in and, and said, this is what you do. Go do it. Right. Um, but, you know, you, you again, you have questions about why things are the, where they are and this. And so I'd come back to him and ask him often, you know, OK, so I'm dealing with this. Why is it like this? Why is why are these people doing this? And he was very kind with his time mm-hmm. explaining a lot about how these things were set up and the kind of some of the history. So I was really bummed when he left, which was probably about a third of the way into my time there. So he wasn't there all that long when I, when I was there. Did you see any of like this infamous SST work ethic? I mean, Mugger is known for it as, as is our Greg and Chuck, right? Like just Which, putting in crazy hours. And Yeah. And, I, I think by that time they had enough help that, that they didn't need to do that. Now, right. and again, I, I kept semi, I was there because I had to call on the international uh, distributors. So I was usually one of the first people there. I'd get there around eight in the morning. Um, and I was, um, I, you know, Steve kind of was there. But so I don't remember them working crazy long hours. But then again, maybe I didn't, would, wouldn't have seen that. But by then, I'm trying to remember like roughly how many people worked there. There's probably, I don't know, 18 to 20 people that were working there at the time. So, you know, they had a really organized shipping department. And I, I kind of get the sense, though, by that point, it was it was not crazy hours for those guys. Yeah, but it could be wrong. Yeah. What was just day to day like around the office? Was it still pretty, you know, pretty wild? Were like uh, bands coming into the office and occasionally? And... Yeah, you would see some, some groups would come in. Uh, I remember for, and, and I, you know, I would do c- certain things I would get assigned. And I don't really know why. I remember I took HR around to like. <laughs> couple of record stores and and you know so so strange things would you know it, certain people would do certain things and then I, I was not entirely sure why but um we would definitely see bands periodically come in i remember when soundgarden came in i remember uh pat smear would wander in mike watt was there a fair bit yeah. um yeah but but there was i mean it was a pretty you know with the exception of obviously um you know the, the, it, was, it was a it was a funky location but it it, it was somewhat organized you know it didn't feel like it was kind of the the freewheeling years like you read about in the right in the gym book uh, 
And it was in the same location the entire time you worked there? Yes. Yeah. yeah. The, the Carson slash North Long Beach location. Mm-hmm. And it was packed. You know, that was not a big office. Yeah. Um, but but it was it was pretty packed with 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 everyone that worked there. Um, it was not spacious by any stretch of the imagination. And at that time, of course, to a lot of people that worked there, smoked. Right. And it was smoked uh, cigarettes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I remember I, I having to kind of ask my office mate, "Hey, you can't smoke in here, yeah. man." It's, it's, but that, those were the that was you know that was the years that everybody smoked cigarettes anyway. But uh, so it was um, yeah, it was a funky location, but. Like I said, it, you know, especially looking back on it, it really did. It was it was a pretty well run operation and um, very inclusive. And um, you know, there's a lot of stuff coming and going. I mean, a lot of product coming in, you know, manufacturing wise, a lot of stuff going out, um, and just a lot of activity. Yeah, 1987, the year you started there, is kind of year zero in terms of quantity for sure like there was over 100 albums released that year um (laughs) any thoughts on like how that impacted the label i mean you you had to sell all these records to the distributors right yeah (laughs) yeah and it was tough you know i mean again it's sort of a soft sell to be honest especially because you know then and and sort of well i think finally now in the recorded music business there's no returns but in those days there were returns and so you know you, you couldn't really force the issue and i think I think it was too much product coming out um, at the time because you couldn't really focus on that. And and I heard back from the distributors the same thing. It's like, and a lot of that stuff was was things that were, you know, they were not Husker Du, they were not Dinosaur Junior, they right. were they were much lower selling selling records that um, that a lot of the distributors were kind of like, wow, can you guys slow down a little bit? <laughs> you know? um, but that's what they wanted to do. I've heard. That, you know, it was kind of, I don't know if this was spoken, unspoken, or just completely untrue, but hey, if you want, if you want more copies of Zen Arcade, you're going to have to take some of these slovenly records. Yeah. Any truth to that? Um, not really from my side of things. Now that might've been going on with, with some back channel thing, but, but, but that never was, was something, you know, and, and. Even at that time, a lot of the popular records were out of stock, mm. and so, you know, especially if you you know if you follow the the record business now, you you see, and, and even then it was the same thing, but it, it wasn't as above board or not above board. It wasn't it wasn't acknowledged as much. But, you know, the the record business is really a business of catalog, yeah. and and that's really when you look at even streaming now and things like that, it's still a, a huge percentage is catalog stuff. And, and, and I didn't, I didn't have that, that I didn't have enough experience to recognize that at the time. But now looking back, that's really what I think SST, it wasn't necessarily their fault, but you know, they were, you're always constantly behind and being paid by the distributors, which means you're always constantly, uh, you know, trying to get money to your manufacturers to get all that stuff back in that was out of stock. And so we were constantly out of the things that everybody wanted, mm. which was the old Husker Du albums or right. whatever, you know, Minutemen or the Black Flag stuff. That I, I remember that. And then, of course, well, that, I, I can't, but, I, you know, plus when you're putting a lot of your money into new releases, right? Yes, right. So a lot of, I mean, and of course they had as, 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 
you know, and corporate rock sucks points out, you know, these were small recording budgets, relatively speaking, but, mm-hmm. but still it's money going out. And, um, and I think that's probably, you know, like every small label, you know, you always have cash flow problems. Um, and that was really the issue at the time was that all the distributors that I were talking to, it's like, yeah, Hey, that's nice. We'll, we'll take some of those slovenly records, but Hey, you know, where, where's this, where's our order that we ordered, you know, a month ago right. for black flag. Yeah. Any insight on your end about what would have been like the biggest seller on SST? I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about the era where Sonic Youth was on the label, Firehose, yeah. Dinosaur Jr., and older stuff like Husker Du, Minutemen. I read somewhere that Eye Against Eye was one of the biggest sellers. It was. It was a big seller, yeah. And again, but it, all of those things, and it was just hard to tell. I mean, those were all high-demand albums, obviously. Mm-hmm. And the Soundgarden record, when it came out, that had that was a pretty big, um, you know, that was a pretty big commitment um, for the label to, to put that out. But I think... Um, it, it was hard to tell because we were always out of all that stuff, right? You know, and and so I could tell there was a demand for it, but the numbers I didn't really see, and I never really saw, I never saw like cumul- cumulative numbers, you mm-hmm. know. So I, I wouldn't have seen that, and um, but that was always the problem is just you know they all wanted that catalog. All the distributors, you know, were always shorthanded on the catalog stuff, on the classic stuff, and um. And we were kind of always pushing the newer stuff. So mm-hmm. it was always kind of the dynamic that I was dealing with. So when you're polling these distributors, right, asking, mm-hmm. you know, trying to gauge on how many records to press, like, do you have any idea how many records of some of those more what I call the vanity type stuff, you know, the stuff that Greg was really getting into, um, you know, this, the things that people point to to say this is when SST started going downhill. Right. <laughs> A lot of it anyways, right? Sure. Yeah, and yeah. You'd like, I, my, my guess, in, in, I don't recall specifically, but my guess is you're, you're really talking, you know, 2,500 units or something yeah. like that. So, so and, and probably just one time for some of them. Probably just one time, yeah. yeah. I'm sure we had someplace in that building lots of that stuff left over. Hmm. Uh, yeah. So it was, uh, that's, you know, that's the dynamic of when you, when you have a label too, is, you know, balancing all of that stuff, all the vanity things, the things that you're interested in that you know or don't care aren't going to really sell in the numbers. Yeah. Um, but balancing that with the hits. Constant, constant. Yeah. And and the hits. I mean, for something like, I, I mean, maybe you have no insight into this whatsoever or, or, but I mean, you've been in the industry a long time. Yeah. Just a guess. How many copies of, say, Zen Arcade do you think well, would have been sold? I, like, Oh yeah, over time. Um, I, like I, under a million, over oh, a million. Yeah, yeah, you know, under a million for sure. Yeah. I can't imagine them ever having. I'm going to take a wild guess and say, say that the, let's say the 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 Husker Du catalog for SST. So so over all of their records, I'm going to say I bet they probably sold eh, maybe 150 thousand albums com- combined. Really? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. my guess. I mean, I could be completely off, mm-hmm. but that's my guess. That's a lot of records to move and, and pay for, basically, when you're an independent label. Yeah. Um, and at that time, again, you know, they were they were spread out over over so many different distributors, and um, I think uh, you know, so distributors weren't going heavy on them because they knew everybody else had it. So it's kind of a 
you know, there's, it's, it's kind of a plus minus thing when you, when you do handle distribution like they handled. I totally understand why, why they did what they did. But I think on the, you know, in terms of like big sales, I think you're kind of hurting yourself a little bit by doing it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a guess. And I think, you know, but the other question too is, well, what, what, if they had them in stock the whole time, right. what they <laughs> yeah, so good I'm point. taking into account is that I, they, they couldn't meet the demand. Yeah. So, so that's a, that's a, that's a calling it an educated best guess is being kind. Mm-hmm. Uh, any insight into what Greg's day to day was like, was it like, was he around the office most days? He, he, as I recall, he came in late. Mm-hmm. Greg, Greg is a, pretty good basketball player and i remember playing shooting hoops with him at lunchtime um but i think he i got the sense i think he was more of a late he came in into the office later um he was there every day and and i got the sense that he he worked later into the night and i think i I remember hearing at the time that he started doing a lot more recording himself i think at that time Mm -hmm. he was and i don't know necessarily what he was working on but i i got this i got the sense or maybe heard at the time that he was in the studio in the evenings of during that period of time doing something Hmm. yeah i think by the time gone the the project Mm -hmm. kind of wound up i've heard and read that he had some sort of finger injury that kept him from playing guitar for a, for a period of time. Could have been from playing basketball. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we've definitely talked to people and that's a, a, a common experience shooting hoops, you know, out yeah. behind the, in the parking lot or whatever. Right. And I played basketball in high school. So, um, you know, I wasn't bad. And I, I remember watching him go, oh, that guy's a pretty good player. You know, yeah. I don't, I don't think he played ever, you know, like in school, but, uh, but yeah, you know, and 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 I did travel one time with Greg uh, to Philadelphia for some conference, and so you know that was kind of an extended period of time I, I had with him, mm-hmm. and um, and he we were both economics majors, um, he at UCLA, which is a far more stringent and rig- rigid, rigorous I should say uh, program than mine at San Diego State. But um, you know he 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 was a, a very well read individual, mm-hmm. and and I found him to be. Not super conversational, you know. You kind of had to pull stuff out of him, but, but you know, he we we talked guitars and we talked a lot of different things on that trip. And I I have a a, a fond memory of of kind of just hanging out with him that one time. Right. But he was he was a he was an interesting guy to say the least. Yeah. And what about Chuck? Did, was he kind of around? I, I mean, like yeah. I think he was kind of involved with global the booking at at various he, points. He, yeah, and he, um, like I said, he was kind of a free, you know, using an American football f- thing. He was he was kind of a, a, a free safety. You know, he was doing different things at different times as as need be. I think when at one point I reported into him uh, near the end, and then I think when I left, he took over the sales slot for a while until they found somebody else. And 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 Chuck was a nice guy as well. You know, they were all. I think I'd like before we hit record, I, I mentioned to you that, you know, I, I only dealt with Chuck for a, for a good long time before I saw him play. Right. Um, and it, you know, the, the, the difference was, was stark and shocking because it's like <laughs> you said, he turned a switch on and he was just a madman when he played. Right. And yet around the office, he was very, res- almost reserved, you mm-hmm. know, just, just very soft spoken. And, 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 but, but again, those guys, you know, they, they had been there from the beginning. They really did, truly know that business inside and out you know they had they had put boxes together to send to distributors they had done flyers they 
you know, they they had really done everything that can be done uh, as a band and as label owners. And so it was interesting to hear their stories. And, you know, again, you kind of you kind of just occasionally get a question in and and then they would kind of talk about the old days and then kind of how it got to be the way it was that day. Mm -hmm. So uh, they were interesting people, you know. I thought maybe this was the era where Swa was still jamming in the basement of the office. No, no, there was no basement in that okay. time, that office. Um, uh, but that was a Swa show that I saw. They were, I, I, my recollection at least is they they were sort of on hiatus at the mm. time. I don't recall exactly, but but it was a Swa show. But I remember thinking that, or hearing that that they hadn't played for for some time before when I had seen them that one time. Mm-hmm. What about socially? Did the did the people from the office like go see shows, go see bands? Oh yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Oh for sure. Yeah, I remember. You know, we would all go out to certain shows, and um, I remember going to see uh, Dinosaur Junior. Maybe the loudest concert I've ever been to. Uh, with and, and the whole gang was there. So yeah, yeah periodically we would have, you know was and then and we would occasionally all go out to lunch and everything. So it was a fairly social group. But I think it, there was there was definitely a division. Uh, between kind of the the original you know folks that were just fans of everything, diehard fans of the label of the bands and that had been there from the beginning, uh, whether as fans or employees, and then the, kind of the new generation of people mm-hmm. that I consider I was kind of part of, which was not necessarily grew up with that with the label and with those bands, but but liked and appreciated the ethos of the of of the of the company of the label. But but you know had different life experiences and and kind of came in in after college to to this and looked at it more career wise actually right, right. Um, you know it's no secret that uh, a lot of the artists had issues with with SST did you see yeah. any of that I did not no. no that 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 I heard about that later. Um, and then of course reading uh, Jim's book it, it really highlights that. Um, yeah. I maybe heard a little teeny bit about it, but I didn't. I I was not in in any position to hear about that stuff. Mm-hmm. But but of course, working in the record business, uh, I do know a lot about that. And, and oh it's, yeah, it's not unique it's, to SST for it's, sure. No, it's not. No. And and you know, to be fair, and I don't know. <clears throat> I think it was a little di- different for SST because it a lot of that you know was s- such a built around a scene and a region differently. But you know, having worked at, at labels and and dealt with you know trying to get people paid it's amazing how hard it is to get people paid sometimes they move they don't give forwarding addresses mm. and things like that it's mm-hmm. really hard in the best of circumstances interesting to get yeah paid sometimes but yeah i think again it's part of just the 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 constant cash flow issue of of a, of a small label like that is you know getting people paid getting paid yourself paying i mean Thank God we never, I, I never had a paycheck that was, that was missed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm sure Greg, you know, being a passionate music person that he is, was always kind of, you know, okay, do I, do I give the Meat Puppets uh, a royalty check, you know, this quarter? Or do I put out two new records by Name the Band? You right. know, it's, right. you're making those, those decisions and I'm sure you're much more enthusiastic about the brand new band and yep. it's a challenge. A few of the ex-employees that we've spoken to ended up getting poached by other labels. Is that what happened with you? I know it was Deaf American next for you. No, Deaf American came. Uh, gosh, that was two labels later. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I have such a checkered employment history. No, I, um, you know, 
for me, I went on a, um, you know, a lot of these, obviously the relationships I had with distributors were via the telephone. Mm -hmm. And so there ended up being some sort of a conference down in, um, uh, New Orleans, actually an independent district, independent, independent distribution conference, I guess it was. And so I ended up going down there and met a lot of people that I'd only had a a phone call, phone relationship with. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's, you know, I, I kind of, at that point was recognizing that I needed to leave at some point, you know, there was not a lot of room for growth financially necessarily, or, or even career wise there. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when I went to this conference in, in New Orleans, I met, uh, a really nice guy named Bruce McGuire, who was my contact at a distributor whose name I can't remember that was in Minneapolis at the time. Um, and he was about to go to Warner Brothers Records. And I met him there. And then I somehow also met his boss, a woman named Joe Lenardi, who was setting up at Warner Brothers Records a alternative marketing department. So to handle alternative stuff. So this at that time, what was going on was, you mentioned poaching, a lot of you know, the, the, a lot of the bands like Dinosaur Jr., like obviously Husker Du had already gone to Warner Brothers. I think right. they had gone to Warner Brothers and broken up by this time. Um, so, so, you know, the, the, the major labels were getting hip to all this, in quotation marks, alternative music. And so a lot of those, uh, of those bands were being poached from indie labels. And then Warner Brothers was pretty aggressive in that space, but they also then created this alternative marketing department. So they had these different regional people and all they did was work on independent, or I'm sorry, on, on alternative, what was alternative stuff then. Right. And so, um, Bruce was going to be the regional guy for Warner brothers in the, in the Minneapolis area. And he introduced me to his boss, this woman, Joe Lenardi. And, uh, I let her know that I was looking, I was looking to move on and she connected me with, um, with a, an opening that was actually in as, as an assistant, but for one of the ex- senior executives at Warner Brothers Records, which I took. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I left. But it was basically from connections that I made at SST. Mm-hmm. And I was there again for another just two years at Warner Brothers Records. Then I went to Giant for a second, which was Irving Azoff's label. Mm-hmm. And then I went to work for Rick Rubin. I, I met Rick Rubin through when I was at Warner Brothers Records because that was as he was transitioning from who distributed him? Uh, anyway, but but he was he was coming into the fold at Warner Brothers Records at that time. So, okay. Uh, so when my, you were at Warner Brothers, did you have like your own artists that you kind of worked with? Uh, well, I, again, I worked for this senior senior executive, and he had artists, and so he had all the biggest alternative artists at Warner Brothers, which at the time was like Echo and the Bunnymen, REM, B fifty twos. Uh, he didn't have dinosaur junior, interestingly enough. Um, but he had, he had uh, talking heads and then David Byrne had gone solo at that point. So he had all the big, big Depeche mode, all these giant bands were all under his direction. So just be being his assistant, I got to meet all the management and a lot of the artists and things like that. So it ended up being a great career move for me. But again, I'll, I'll, I'll harken back to SST. You know, one of the things, like I said earlier was, at SST, I had that um, that super broad overview and experience of seeing all the different components that just happened to be in-house there. Right. Very few labels had all of those things in-house like that. And so I had a leg up there when I got to Warner Brothers, just kind of knowing 
all the different departments, all the different components and how they all kind of worked and uh, ended up being for me a, g- a good gig. And, but again, the same thing, you know, you kind of have to move, you know, if you don't get promoted right away, then you got to move and find someplace else. So that's, that was my sort of arc at the time. Mm-hmm. Did you meet Irving? Did he recruit oh, you yeah. to, to giant? Yeah. Yes, I did. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, I, of course I met him and spent a little bit of time with, him. I remember going to, uh, the first Lollapalooza, I, in fact, I hadn't even started with him. Mm-hmm. He, me and one other guy had both been hired, and neither of us had started. And uh, the first Lollapalooza was at a, a venue uh, at the, in here in Southern California called, at the time, called Irvine Meadows, mm-hmm. which Irving owned. And oh yeah, so, this is before it was tr- even a traveling show. I'm, I'm guessing. Yes, that's yeah. correct. It was just a one-off, yeah. and it was a. It's either two or three days, though. I can't remember. Three, I think. Um, and so I get a call from Irving's office. I'm still answering phones and being an assistant to this executive. Um, and his Irving's assistant called and said, hey, Irving would like you to go with him to, uh, to Lollapalooza. And so I go down to his office and away we go. And let me tell you, there's nothing like going to a concert with the guy that owns the venue. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it, it's <laughs> the only way to go. And, and at the time, though, in Irving, and I got hired to be the alternative guy, the alternative product manager there. Mm. And um, Irving was trying to poach, poach bands, trying to sign. He wanted to sign because at that time, uh, Nine Inch Nails was on an independent label and it was, they were looking to leave. I remember meeting Trent backstage and, and with Irving, trying to talk to him about coming over to Giant. And Rage Against the Machine was were, was free agents around that time. They weren't on the bill, but I remember you know trying to sign those guys. So, uh, so yeah, it was he, he was an interesting cat to say the least. For movie. sure. Then you went to Deaf American. Then I was a Deaf American. Yeah, yeah. I I, I, well, I when I got hired to work at Giant, a, a guy hired a, the person I was going to work for. A guy named Bill Burks, who's a lovely man, uh, who I ended up working with him again in the future, but uh, he was the one who was going to be my boss. Mm-hmm. And the, my last day at Warner Brothers before I was going to go to work at Giant, they fired Bill Burks, mm-hmm. <laughs> the guy that I was going to go to work for. Right. That was never a good sign, right? Yeah. And so, um, and so I so I went to work for Giant, and in the end, that that was not a good fit for me. So I left briefly after about a year, and then a guy named. Uh, Mark Geiger, who I knew from my Warner Brothers days, who was one of the the, the principals behind, with Perry of starting uh, Lollapalooza, he was working for Rick at the time. And I would see him at this alternative marketing meeting at Warner Brothers when I worked for Giant, because uh, they were distributed through Warners. Um, and he asked if I wanted to come over to Deaf American. And so Rick knew me from working at Warner Brothers, and I went over and interviewed with Rick. I uh, went up to his house, and we took his Rolls Royce down and had lunch at a restaurant. And Andrew Dice Clay was there, strangely <laughs> enough, talked to him. And uh, I ended up working there for probably almost four years. Oh, wow. I wonder if you worked there at the same time as Pat Howitt, who uh, also worked for SST and who we've had I on remember the show. Pat, yeah. but, but uh, for sure, uh, a yeah. super nice guy. But I, it, at did he go to? I guess right. He go did go to Defo. I think he was gone by. No, I can't. No, he, I don't think he was there when I. By the time I got there. Mm. Yeah. Did, have you had Pat on the show? We have. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, yep. if you talk to him again, please send him my regards. I, I will for sure. Yeah. Really nice guy. Yeah. Okay. So wow, four years. Yeah, I know it. And then at that time, they were. 
Warner Brothers had invested a lot of money, I think, in Deaf American, and and Deaf American had some big big artists, obviously the Black Crows, yep. Sir Mix a lot, um, but they were spending money, you know, a lot of money, I think, and so um, I, I, they started to to cut heads at Deaf American, and mm-hmm. that's that's when I left. I got laid off. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the record business. Yep. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. And then what? Uh, then I went to work for, at the time, uh, Warner Brothers, Warner Music Group had, um, the, this, um, of course they had manufacturing, so they had CD manufacturing, they had distribution, and so, uh, of course, at the time, um, video games were huge. Mm. This was just before consoles came in, and so the Warner Music Group wanted to create, uh, because they figured, listen, we, 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 we manufacture the discs. We have sales people going into these same accounts that sell music CDs. Uh, we should be in the gaming business. And, the, and the, inter, the, the entertainment business over the years has had these uh, thoughts and have jumped into interactive you know, media uh, fairly unsuccessfully. And this was another round of, of that happening. And so Warner Music Group started a company called Warner Active, it was in the same building I was in at Deaf American, and I somehow met them, and uh, I got, went to work for them. And so I so I kind of did a sidestep from music into interactive media, which was then again CD-ROMs. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got there, and then they folded that up into another. And at that time, there was a lot of chaos going on in the world of music. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and everyone's so, trying to figure out what the future of the industry was. That's I, right. I, that's when you say CD-ROMs, I just you know. You chuckle. I, yeah. You, for about a year, every CD you bought had like videos on it and things That's like right. that. And then it's gone, right? And That's then it's the right. next yeah. thing, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. so, um, <laughs> but there's also, uh, uh, you know, kind of things going on in, at, at the top of the food chain at Warner Brothers. Um, uh, Steve Ross was the was the man who owned, um, who owned, who was the, the chairman of, of, uh, of Warner Brothers, the studio. And of course, Warner Music Group was part of that, and he he was a, a wonderful person to work for, and paid his people super well. And he passed away, and so there was a, a whole succession headache, and it was just a chaos. Which is when a lot of the, the main people from Warner Brothers Records and Atlantic Records and Electra Records all jumped ship because of the chaos. And so that was trickling down to all these interactive companies. Each of those divisions in the Warner family had their own interactive company. So there was Warner Music had Warner Active. Warner Brothers Studios had Warner Brothers Interactive. Uh, HBO, which was a part of, of Warner Brothers at the time, had a company called Inkscape that was also doing CD-ROM. So they had all these different divisions. And then they kind of smushed them together. And then I went to work for Inkscape for a while and that was the end of my foray into interactive media at that point. But uh, mm-hmm. when did a, your when did your radio st- show start? Not your podcast, but your radio show. Uh, you, I, the podcast I did have a radio show too, but the podcast started. Gosh, we did we started it in twenty twenty. So we're I think we're heading into our not our fourth year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're in on we're on on episode one hundred and seventy seven or so. Wow. So probably three years ago, two years ago, two and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a friend of mine, Jay, who I worked with at Universal. And okay. Jay has a, his name is Jay Gilbert. He has a uh, wonderful newsletter that is free called Your Morning Coffee, mm-hmm. which is uh, all about the digital music business, kind of what we call the new music business. And yeah. he decided to, uh, 
he wanted to do a podcast. So we started that and we are having a lot of fun with it. Yeah. What's the state of the industry these days from your oh, estimation? That's such a broad question, Brent. Um, <laughs> well, it's just different. You know, yeah. it's changed. I think that's that's the biggest thing, which is, you know, and it's funny because we started our conversation by talking about, you know, the the CDs coming in and, and nobody wanting vinyl. And it's, you know, I, I as Jay and I say, we were both there when we were just shoving vinyl out the door because nobody wanted it anymore. <laughs> And and the fact that we now have conversations about vinyl and vinyl sales in 2024 now is to me stunning. Yeah. Um, but it's a weird market, you know. It's it's um, I think th- there are some good things about uh, you know streaming services. You know, one of the things is you know when when I was growing up and you're you're a fair bit younger than me. Um, you know, you had a fixed income with which you could invest in your record collection. Yeah. And you couldn't be super adventurous. You know, you, you kind of had to be really specific and, and, and careful about how you spent your $8 or whatever it was at the time on a vinyl record. Yeah. And so, you know, now it, it's, it's, you can be adventurous with streaming. And so we're seeing so much of that now, which is things that are e- even in, in non-English language things or, or just wildly uh, out outside of genres and things like that. So I think the good thing is that you can be a, a music fan and listen to just about anything mm-hmm. and be adventurous and go on these tangents. Um, you know, the downside, of course, is that it's really hard to develop artists and it's really hard to be. The expectation is now. And I mean, the good news is that you know. Garage Band or 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 Pro Tools or any of these digital audio workstations are so cheap. You can record your own stuff for almost nothing. Yeah, you can put it out easily. You can now suddenly be, uh, you know, right next to U2 or next to any band you name on on a list of of things to listen to. But it's super hard to to as to be good at all of those things if you're an independent artist. And so, it's. It's it's the best of times and it's the worst, of times. <laughs> and it's tough to get paid, you know, to to get any sort of an income from uh, from music. And so I don't know. It, it's it's an interesting and weird time. It's still a great time for live music, but yeah, yeah, uh, that's the good news. So I don't it it you know it's just different. You know, it's 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 for 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 people starting out now. It's all they know. Yeah. But for those of us that have a perspective of the past and and the present. Um, it it is a mixed bag for sure. I think it's made people more open to, you know, just listening to all different kinds of music. Yes. I mean, when I to go back to what you were saying, you know, when I'm buying stuff in the '90s, still I had early '90s super limited income, so yeah. you're just you're often taking a chance, crossing your fingers that it's something that you're going to like, buying it, you know only because it's on, say, SST or something, right? Okay, okay well, I like Black Flag, so maybe I'll like Husker Du, right? Right. And uh, now, I mean, my kids, they listen to all kinds of music. Sky's it the totally limit. runs the gamut. You know? Yeah, the sky's the limit. You yeah. know, it, it, it's, and it's, in that sense, it's great. For music yeah. exploration and things like that, it, it's, you, it, it's unparalleled, of course. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, and I, you know, I, we, we, Jay and I talk about this a lot. We tell the story of, you know, one of the biggest selling albums of all time is dark side of the moon. Mm -hmm. Dark side of the moon, I believe was Pink Floyd's seventh album. 
no, you know, on on a on a on a major label, nobody gets that sort of runway anymore. Yeah. You know, to to develop. Yeah, for and sure. So yeah. just pe- period. And so when you think about some of the biggest selling artists of all time, that they wouldn't they wouldn't have existed in the current the way we do things. Um, and so what are we what are we missing now? What you know, what what uh, what classic record will never be made because yeah. you know a band won't stay together that long and they won't get that sort of runway. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a it's a weird time because especially for the major labels it's 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 a business of hits, it's a business of catalog, you know, that's really s- supporting everything still. It's just strange times, you know. Um but it's exciting times and and like you I'm sure I, you know there's I, I hear music from my kids that I love that I've never explored and and God you just go down a rabbit hole sometimes and discover just some unbelievably great music. Yeah. Well, I feel like in a way, you know, indie the indie bands are are I don't want to say thriving because I don't want to, you know, I'm sure there are bands that would totally resent hearing that, but I mean like they they're still selling records and mm-hmm. and especially on tour and as you say, like they're, they're able to reach a a much wider audience. And, and even for SST, we've lamented many times on our show that there's so many releases that we've talked about that are completely unavailable in any format, unless you want to spend, uh, you know, hundreds of dollars to buy a vinyl copy on, on Discogs. That's probably a cutout. Exactly. (laughs) You know, but it's still going to cost you a hundred bucks, right? Fortunately, some of that stuff's shown up on on Spotify. Yes, in the yeah, last couple of years, sure. Well, and and that's one of the things that people don't quite remember is that you know whenever we make a transition to from vinyl to CD or and then from CD to streaming, a lot of stuff gets left behind, mm-hmm. you know. And whether whether it's sometimes it's just contractually or you know things move around in terms of ownership. So there, so there's, there is a lot of stuff that isn't available even on streaming still. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that, that I, I was had the thought I never really finished it was what what I think is challenging is is everything is so easy now in terms of recording and distribution and all that stuff. But but the expectation is that an artist has to know about all that stuff. So you have to be good at social media. You have to be good at understanding how to how to record something. You have to be good at marketing. You have to be good. Oh, and by the way, you have to write a song that makes you cry. You know, it's like, it's almost impossible yeah. you know, to, to have all of that skill set. And so the good news is all of that stuff is available and, and doable for an artist these days. But the bad news is, is that you have to have accrue a, a, a knowledge and and understanding of all of these components of artist development and things like that. And that's really, that's tough, you know, in the old days, sounding like a geezer, um, you know, a, a, a label would sign an artist, let's say, and work with them to create just the best. All they had to focus on was making the best record possible. And a major label would generally speaking, put the best people, you know, a, a good engineer, a good producer, put everybody as do the best they could do to, to make great art. And, you know, you can, you can, it's easy to kind of criticize major labels and rightly so in, in many cases, but that's generally speaking, what kind of happened a lot is they really did try to make good records, great records. Um, and now you don't have those benefactors. So, so to speak, right. you know, you don't have that, that, that infrastructure where people are helping you 
just get out the art, the greatness. Yeah. Very difficult to do that and, and independently, and, um, you know, in this day and age. It can be done, but it's tough. Well, I feel like your and Jay's show is a great resource for artists, labels, well, we try, managers. So yeah. any thoughts of expanding it maybe into a book or something? Oh, you know, I, I, the problem, of course, is that this stuff changes so mm-hmm. fast. Yeah, you know, it, good point. Yeah. It, it's really difficult. I'm to, sure even over the run of your, your show. No, of yeah. course. And we, we kiddingly say, you know, th- this whatever topic is, you know, has changed as we were talking about. Right. It. You know, it's, everything is moving at such a, you know, and, and we spent a lot of time in the last couple of months talking about AI. Right, yeah. And all of those things in AI and, you know, oh my God, you know, the sky is falling. Um, but, you know, there's there's so many wonderful things that are happening with AI. But it's just, you know, every, the, it's always something. And, you know, remember we were talking a year ago about NFTs and how NFTs were going to be, you know, this big thing. <laughs> they're well, gone. <laughs> they're gone, yeah. exactly. Not so much. They're not worth anything. <laughs> no, they're no. not. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, it's so wild. There's, there's so many things that, that, you know, come and go, but it's just the speed with which it's happening. Yeah. It well, really, that's everything in our culture nowadays yeah i was listening to some ai generated air quote recordings of bon scott singing uh back in black era songs and and it sounds pretty pretty good (laughs) yes it's scary jay has said that that he he can envision a um a scenario where there is a whole separate um kind of a uh, subscription service that is only going to be like that, you wow. know, kind of a, of course you have to license it and all that stuff, but, but yeah, you can, you can, it'll be Bon Scott singing, you know, Frank Sinatra or whatever, you know, you just <laughs> complete AI stuff just because the technology exists. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I don't know whether to be excited or, or scared for, for the future here. Uh, both. Yeah. How about both? Yeah. How about both? <laughs> Mike, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me hey, today. Brent, it's been a pleasure, man. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to chat uh, about the, which was again, 35 years ago in my past. So, so forgive my lack of recollection, but yeah. uh, it's fun to revisit. For sure. Thanks so much. Right on. Thanks for being on the show, Mike. Definitely adds more to the SST story for sure. You know, there is this lore about people who went and, you know, had interviews at the boardroom table while everyone just finished smoking pot and shooting hoops. And it was, (laughs) it was great to hear about how it went down for Mike and how, like many other people we've had on the show, this was kind of the start of Mike's career in the biz, right? SST, it wasn't just, you know, a bunch of sweat hogs pushing product and phoning around to radio stations. There are a lot of people who ended up working in the biz and they also kind of flew the flag for indie rock for years to come after their tenure at SST. Yeah, well, interesting that he points out his era as kind of being the starting point of of that, you know, where you had the earlier earlier employees who were either, you know, most of them were super devoted to the label and like the ethos versus folks like him who were out of college and kind of looking for a career in the music, music business, you know? Yeah. Like I remember, you know, getting out of high school and my entry job was going to be McDonald's. Yeah. (laughs) Can you imagine if, can you imagine if SST was your entry position into the industry? Wow. Well, and, and 
maybe we've made this point before, but he kind of drove it home, I think. Like, not only was SST and other indie labels farm teams for what ended up happening in the 90s with the, you know, for the bands, also a farm team for for employees. Many of these people went on to, to uh, you know, you're, you're signing all these indie bands from the indie labels. They want to work with people from their world, right? Mm-hmm. Totally. So, okay. So interesting to have him expand on what was happening with the, with the distributors. We, you know, he and I were talking beforehand about Jim's book um, right before we started recording. Mike's not in the book, but it does go into the, the issues with, with Jam and important records and, and how they mm, went yeah. under. Got me thinking that right at the end of Mike's time at the label is basically where we're at right now. Well, he, he left in 89. Um, we're a bit after that. We're 90, 91 right now. As I mentioned off the top, several comps and anthologies coming out. I wonder if that was a result of the cash flow issue, like maybe either a means to generate some cash flow or, um, you know, they just didn't have money to put out new records maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Or, or they had money to just pump more product that they thought would turn into a bunch more money. Um, but unfortunately some of them turned into duck and cover and were double cutout bins. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I think some of these releases like summary, for example, probably sold pretty well and would have cost them nothing to put, to put together. That's what I'm getting at, right? Yeah. Like they probably made some dough on that one. Yeah. Uh, we touch on Mike's podcast, Your Morning Coffee, with uh, his co-host Jay Gilbert, uh, which focuses on digital music in the industry. Uh, sometimes it's just the two of them, and sometimes they have a, a relevant guest. It's great. Um, actually, uh, a, a listener, Glenn Booth, hit me to to the show, so thanks, Glenn, for that. Should we check out this comp, Ryan? Yeah, man. History Lesson, Part 2. So this one came out sometime in 1990 on CDLP and cassette. Uh, 13 tracks, all um, three releases have the same exact same tracks on it. Um, stuff we've heard before, so my comments will be fairly brief here. It is not streaming. Maybe all of these tracks are. I, I didn't actually check if you could kind of make a comp on Spotify of this. I doubt it. Um, but the whole thing's up on YouTube as well for people who don't have it. Yeah, or just buy used copy off of Amazon or something. Yeah, I don't. I didn't. I didn't look, but I gotta assume they're kicking around. Yeah, maybe they're worth something now. I don't know. Yeah, I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> Track one, side one, eight miles high. The Husker Du cover first heard on O twenty five, the seven inch. Um, we selected it as our ballot result pick, by the way, for that one, Ryan. So. Um, it's out and we'll be hearing it again in like seven episodes written, yeah. written by David Crosby, Gene Clark and Roger McEwen of the birds. Not going to go into the history of the originals on any of these either, by the way, I assume we like likely did that on, on previous episodes. It's cool. I probably said this on episode 25. I've never really understood why people, um, just freak out about this cover. It's just all right oh. for me. Oh, it's better than all right for me, but yeah. I think part of its lore is how insane it was live and how Bob would just go off, I think, yeah. is is kind of why um, people hold this cover in such high regard. Did we talk about the Twitter feud between Roger and the Cross on this one? <laughs> Probably. Do, do you remember that? Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, we probably did. That sounds yeah, Ro- sounds familiar. Yeah, Roger was like, ah, I thought they, it was a very creative uh, cover. And then he kind of tagged David in on Twitter. And the cross said, didn't get me. In it. <laughs> Sparked a feud? That was the Twitter feud, oh, I that, think. Oh, that was it, okay. Uh, okay, track two, Good Golly Miss Molly uh, by the Meat Puppets. Um, SST 49, 1986's Out My Way EP. Written by Robert Blackwell and John Mariscalo, a couple of songwriters, uh, primarily active in the 50s, popularized by Little Richard. It's, uh, have you seen the Little Richard documentary, by the way? No, I want to, though. Yeah. Where where did you pick it up? I haven't seen it yet. Oh, no, yeah. I want to see that. I know that's going to be amazing. I think his real name is Richard Wayne Penniman. Yeah, that little sounds Ri- right. Little yeah. Richard, yeah. It's a wild take, uh, especially the double time section at the end with Kurt's solo and the keys. Not really a huge fan of when Kurt sings, like, at the top of his range, but it's okay. Yeah. This is not nearly as good as 8 Miles High for me. Yeah. Okay, Black Flag, Louie Louie. First heard on Flag's 1981 Posh Boy single, reissued as SST-175 in 1987. Uh, oddly enough, we picked uh, picked it for the ballot result instead of the far superior B-side, Damaged One, likely because that was our somewhat controversial pick for the ballot result off of the Damaged album. Oh, no way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. even though the single version has Dezo on vocals, obvious, obviously, and, and the Damaged version is Henry. Uh, also appears on uh, 021, The First Four Years, 166, Wasted Again, and in an alternate uh, rec- recorded version, uh, also with Des on vocals on 015, Everything Went Black. And also on the CD cassette versions of Who's Got the Ten and a Half with Henry on vocals. And I think that's everywhere, but I could be wrong. Oh, it's also on the best of Louie Louie right. on Rhino, Rhino Records. Right. Another tribute comp. I saved one tribute comp. There you go. Uh, kind of three for, three for me is... Uh, as far as uh, tracks that are that I could live without, if I'm being honest. Yeah, I don't need this one. Yep. Uh, track four, Kick Out the Jams, Volcano Suns. Heard this not too long ago on the CD version only of 257, Thing of Beauty. It's killer, Bob Weston's bass tone, Peter's vocals. A lot of bands, yeah. when they cover this, they play it too fast. I like the tempo on the Suns version. Yeah. I w- I've been in just a total Volcano Suns customized kick after going through uh, them last year. Like, I feel, you know, I was always a fan, um, but I feel like I've rediscovered them. And man, do I love Volcano Sons. I wish they were more appreciated. Such a shame. And uh, the new Mini Beast double LP is killer. Yeah. Uh, Track five, Six Pack, Saccharin Trust, written by Greg Ginn, recorded live uh, by the Rat Soundboard and released on 149 Past Lives. Um, with updated slash revised lyrics from Jack Brewer, backing vocals from Kira Rossler and Dave O'Clausen. There's no date or location listed on Past Lives. I think this is the only track where it's not listed. I always assumed it's from somewhere on the My War tour in 84. Dave was obviously the driver and Kira was in Black Flag by that point. And Saccharin Trust were the support band on one leg with October Faction and on another with Tom Tricoli's dog. Speaking of Tom Tricoli's dog, um, 
that album gets unfairly maligned to a degree, in my opinion, but there is an awesome cover of Dylan's Girl from the North Country on it with Mm -hmm. Chewy Modelo, a.k.a. John Doe. That should have been on this. Yeah, Tom Tricoli's dog is better than Happy Flowers. Yeah, oh yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That cover should have been on this comp. That's a good one. Track six, Crazy Horses by Revolution 409. Um, An Osmond Brothers tune performed here by Red Cross for Dave Markey's Melting Plot Comp 249, uh, which is also a covers compilation, by the way. It's also on the mini plot. Yep. SST 234. Yeah. We didn't pick it for either one, uh, but I do like it, so it's a contender here. And then we're flipping it over, just like heaven. Dinosaur Jr., we heard it not that long ago on 244, the Just Like Heaven 7-inch, and we'll be hearing it again in 12 more episodes. It was our pick for uh, for uh, episode 244. We'll also hear it on SST 914 and SST 925, Brant. Okay, good to know. Yeah, because yeah. Just Like Heaven and Fossils were re-released in the nines. Hmm. All right. You're way more interested in those releases <laughs> than I am. <laughs> there are some standalone releases there. I just like to bug you because I, I feel like you don't care. Yeah, no, I don't. Okay. Uh, <laughs> track two is The Horse Song, Leaving Trains, written by The Egg, along with Rob Dupree of The Mumps, who went on to play with Iggy in his underrated post-Bowie era, circa 81 to 82. This song is from the criminally underrated album Zombie Birdhouse. We first heard it on episode 114, Fuck. Cool and interesting choice of covers. Um, Mm -hmm. We're going to be getting into a glut of Trains releases, and I can't wait. Yeah, yeah, I love the Trains. I was surprised in my tribute to tributes that, like, to see leaving Trains at all Hmm. as, as, like, on these. I just felt like they were, I don't know, a little bit under the radar to make it onto some of those tribute comps, but they did. Yeah. Uh, the next one is Ghost uh, by Stone by Stone with Chris D. We heard this about a year ago, uh, actually, on 247, 1989's I Pass for Human, uh, written by Eric Martin of The Neats. Hearing mm-hmm. this got me super primed for next week's episode and some Chris D action. Yeah, nice. Love The Neats. Okay, The Minutemen, Eight Talking About Love. 40-second take on a, on a snippet of the Van Halen classic. We saw this on side chaff of the original version of O28 Double Nickels, not on the infamous 1987 CD reissue that was remixed by Watt and Vetus and removed off of subsequent CD reissues as well. We also heard the uncensored version on O43 Blasting Concept 2, which is about 20 seconds longer than this one. It was also on Post Mersh Volume 3, SST 165. Ah, good one. Uh, And then we've got Wendy by The Descendants on New Alliance Records 29 and SST 242. Enjoy. Absolutely love it. Uh, I never get tired of hearing it. Perfect cover version. I wonder if Brian Wilson ever heard this and if he did what he thought of it. Mm. I I once sang the Beach Boys version in a karaoke bar uh, as a duet with my mom. True story. You did? Yeah. No way. Yeah, true story. Oh, that's that's going to show up on an Instagram feed. You just wait. <laughs> oh, this was like 30 years ago, so I don't think so. I don't know, man. Someone had their camcorder there. Maybe. I can't recall whether we mentioned this too, but when I was uh, 
preparing for the episode, I was still kind of clicking around on these songs. I found out that Mike Love sued Brian Wilson to get his name posthumously added to the credits of this song. It was originally Brian Wilson forever, but then Mike Love sued in the 90s. I think to we get talked it. about that. This sounds yeah. familiar. Yeah. It's like, wow, hey. But I guess, you know, you gots to get paid. Yeah, well, Mike Love's a notorious prick, so not surprising. Yeah. Uh, the next one, Baby It's You by The Last, written by Burt Bacharach, Luther Dixon, and Mac David, originally recorded by The Shirelles, although I believe Joel Nolte told us it was the Beatles' version that inspired The Last's version. Mm-hmm. We heard it back-to-back with their cover of She Loves You at the end of 2.30, Awakening. I recall feeling kind of let down a bit by that decision. Yep, and I believe Joel is Joe is also on record as regretting the the sequencing. It's good. Love hearing Joe Joe belt it out. Of course, I would have probably chosen their cover of "Soldier of Love" from Confession over this. Actually, mm, good call. The next one, "The Light Pours Out of Me" by Trotsky Icepick, written by Howard Devoto, John McGeeuk, and Pete Shelley, and recorded by Magazine in 1978. We heard it on 246 El Cabong. Uh, it was not our ballot result pick, but I believe it was in the running. At least for me, it, it rules. It's a good good cover for yeah, me. Yeah, that sounds right, that it would be in the running. Yeah. The artwork, Ryan. Great artwork by Craig Abera. Uh, I did ask him uh, if the locations represented in the cover art were like real-life locations, and he said no. Kind of, I would say, Robert Crumb-inspired, maybe? A bit, yep. Kind of, because it, it all looks shaky. Yeah. There's a lot going on. I guess it is like a, a nuclear explosion, but it's record CDs and tapes. Or they're falling from the sky and you have to duck and cover. Maybe. The back cover has like a repeating pattern of someone doing the duck and cover and then like... Atomic thing in the middle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like a atomic nucleus and inside of it like a nuclear warning symbol and it says, remain calm, only cover songs. Yeah, you're probably right. It's it's kind of a throwback to uh, whatever World War II or Cold War duck and cover prep videos for school kids ducking under their desk in class. Probably. Yeah, I like the artwork. It is. It's good. Ruland said it's basically like the highlight of this comp. I'd agree with is that. It, is the artwork? Yeah. Yeah. Ryan, a few other covers we've seen that came to mind, uh, other than the the few I've already mentioned. Ninety of them actually. <laughs> okay and go yeah uh sonic youth's cover of uh crimes hot wire my heart mm. kind of surprised that's not on here you know uh or even their cover of kim Fowley's Bubblegum or beat on the brat i want to be your dog alice cooper's hallowed be thy name which is on the love doll superstar soundtrack you'd think they would have put th- some sonic youth on here you know yeah um dc3's theme from an imaginary western or their hawkwind covers or their cover of John Lee Hooker's Bang, 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 Bang. Zoog's Rift covering Tim Buckley's Look at the Fool or Sweet Surrender are both awesome. Yeah, I'm not surprised they didn't put a Zoog's cover on here, though. Who are we kidding? Yeah, Soundgarden Smokestack Lightning cover. It's mm-hmm. not my fave, but I'm kind of shocked it's not on here. Yeah, they could have been doing a bit of cashing in with yep. that, right? Yeah. Maybe, maybe cheating a bit, but Roger Miller's solo version of This Is Not a Photograph. Uh, some other Minutemen songs that I would have chosen over the one that they did, their cover of the Meat Puppets Lost, 
uh, Bermuda, the red and the black, ak, ak, ak. Have you ever seen the rain? Hey, Lordy Mama. Yeah. What else do they, they do? Um, uh, don't look now. Right. right. Yep. Oh that's, man. That's that a cre- good one. That, yeah. that credence track would have been good. Yep. Henry Kaiser's Mason's children. In my opinion, one of the best covers we've heard on the show is Slovenly's cover of Neil's Don't Cry No Tears uh, from We Shoot for the Moon. Mofungo and all their covers of like trad folk songs. Sister oh, yeah. Double Happiness doing Poodle Dog. Universal Congress of cover of Ornette Coleman's Law Years is really good off of This Is Mechalotics. Brian Ritchie's cover of Sun Ra's Nuclear War. Surprised that's not on here. Uh, Always August does a cover of a McCoy Tyner song that's really cool. These Immortal Souls covering Iggy and the Stooges open up and bleed. Angst with their cover of Simon and Garfunkel's Richard Corey is actually exceptionally good. Uh, We've already got Chris D. represented on here, but Divine Horsemen do great versions of David Allen Coe's Field of Stone and The Stone's Gimme Shelter and also of Donovan's Superlungs. Kirk Kelly and Holloway Joe, remember Ryan? He's just oh, yeah. standing on a table and just belting it out a cappella. Right. Blast doing schools out. Treacherous and uh, La Ila Bonita. Uh, going all the way back with Worm doing Time Has Come Today. The Dicks do Purple Haze. Subhumans do Screwed Up by the UK band Menace on No Wishes, Menace. No Prayers. Right. I'm sure there are others that I'm not thinking of, but those are kind of some, some covers I thought of that we've heard on the show. Wow. Yeah, there's more for sure. Yeah. Uh, ballot result? Yeah. Ballot result. Uh, my picks were Wendy, Ghost, and The Light Pours Out of Me. Kind of the three, I, I would say the three that are best suited to, to the artists that covered them for me. Mm. And we haven't picked Wendy before? No. Okay, let's do that. All right. Hey, Ryan, thanks to Mike Etchart for being on, on our show. Yeah, absolutely. It's an honor to have uh, people who are there on the show. Um, these are great stories, and we're, uh, we're loving and appreciating what these people contributed to to this day, and uh, hopefully others will going forward. Yeah, man. Hey, Ryan, what's next week? Well, like you said, Brent, you're going to get some D. It's SST 264, The Flesh Eaters, Prehistoric Fits, Volume 2. Can't wait. And that's our show. <laughs> Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.